Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, in early 2016, I was interviewed a few times by different church leaders and denominations in order to to judge and to decide if I was ready to be a church planter. One of those interviews was with several leaders, and in fact, the president at the time of the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada, which is our denomination. And the tool that they used was called Ridley's 13 Qualities of a Church Planter. And the, this was put together by a, a professor in Indiana called, whose name is Charles Ridley. Um, the idea here is if you've got these qualities, you're likely to succeed as a church planter. If you don't have these qualities, you probably won't. And um, I did fine in the interview, but if I could go back, I would actually, if I, if I could, I would, I, what I'd do differently is I would challenge the tool itself. Because I, there's a couple of things I know now that I didn't know then. One is that Ridley's list of qualities, it's based on research that he did in the mid-1980s from a bunch of American established churches, again, in the mid-1980s. And I don't know if you know this, but the, the mid-80s was a bit of a different time than we're in right now. You know what I'm saying? So, so that's that's one issue. The other issue that I have with it is as I look at this list, and I didn't realize this at the time, but at, at this point in my ministry and with this the experience that I have, I look at this list and I realize you don't need to be a follower of Jesus to to possess these qualities. Like these qualities are they're great, but they're not from Scripture. They come from the business world. These are the qualities of of successful entrepreneurs and, and business leaders and, and CEOs. In fact, let me, let me give you a fun fact. At the end of that interview, the man who was the president of the AGC at the time, he said, based on, based on these 13 qualities, he, he actually said no to me. He, he wouldn't green light my, uh, he, he wouldn't pass me in the interview. And the reason that I did pass is that all of the, everybody else in the room disagreed with him and voted him down. So, so I passed. I got the endorsement uh, uh, from the AGC. They, they are behind us 100%. And in fact, that man's not the president anymore. So again, I passed. But it makes me wonder, like how many people, not just in our tradition, but in all kinds of other traditions, were told no because of that tool? You know, like how many people who had a burden from God, how many people who were sort of tapped on the shoulder by God's spirit and, and they felt that God was telling them to set, a, set up a church in a, in, like a, in a city that needed one. How many of them were told no because they didn't have these 13 qualities? And I don't know what to do about that except to have the conversation today. And that's what we're doing. And, and I've been thinking a lot about this, in fact, since I read a book called A Church Called Tov. And in it, the authors, here's what they have to say. They say, churches today have been so greatly influenced by the achievement and accomplishment culture of the business world that they now define pastor with business culture terms instead of biblical terms. But when pastors are defined primarily as leaders or entrepreneurs or visionaries, they've already ceased to be pastors in any biblical sense. Further, a leadership culture turns the church into an organization governed by a set of management principles. It turns pastors into leaders whose primary aim is the success of the organization. The more ambitious the leader and the more narcissistic the leader, the less of a church the church becomes. Oh man, 
I could not agree with that more. The, the church is, it seems to me, tempted to imitate the business world. And we have fallen for it over and over. That's where we are. That's, it's not a new temptation, but it is a very powerful one. And, and that's not the only one. There are all kinds of other temptations, bad, lots of bad assumptions, lots of other priorities and commitments that are at work in the church that shouldn't be, and we may not even realize it. And today, that's the conversation we need to have. So we're continuing through this series called Table Manners for Brothers, Sisters, Saints, and Sinners. Each week, we're learning how to be a more Jesus-like community by by learning from the things that Paul says to the Corinthian church, the, the ways that Paul corrects them. And today, we are asking this essential question, what tempts the church? What is it that tempts the church? And, and I plan to answer that by, by just following this passage pretty closely, and, and in fact, just simply making a, a number of points. The first point I want to make is simply this. It's that temptation is unavoidable. Okay? Temptation is unavoidable. Now, over the last bunch of weeks, as I've gotten ready for this message, I've read as much as I could about what tempts the church. And it seems to me there are three main families of temptation. I want to share those with you. But first, I think it, it bears saying that fundamentally, there's really just one, though, okay? Like, at the end of the day, it's always idolatry, okay? At, at the end of the day, the church is always tempted to take uh, God out of his rightful place and put something else on the throne. Okay, well, that's idolatry. But that idolatry shows itself in three main ways. And so I want to put those before you now here. The first one is pride. Okay, pride is a temptation that faces the church because we love to be praised and admired. And and we might take pride either in being the best and the biggest church. We might take pride in being the smallest, least known, kind of messy church. It's pride, okay? Pride is why we might turn up our noses at some traditions or some churches or some people. Pride is why we might ignore people who are needy or who seem less attractive or who are less likely to help our brand. Okay, it's pride. Pride is why some pastors uh, become celebrities. It's why some those, those pastors are the heroes of all their own stories and why the church is always the bad guy in their stories. Pride causes us to say that we're different. We're not going to make their mistakes. We've got the answers. We've got the solutions. Okay, it's all pride. And it, it is a constant temptation for the church. The other, though, is pleasure. Okay, it's pleasure. And it's a constant temptation because Christianity is just weird. All right, like, let's be honest. Christianity is weird and we want it to be cool. We want it to be comfortable. And so pleasure is why some leaders who will who feel sorry for themselves will reward themselves and risk everything in order to lead a double life. Okay? Because of pleasure. It's why pleasure is why some churches and why some denominations might imitate or might copy what they see in the culture or in the business world. It's pleasure and, and pleasure might also cause other churches to, to avoid hard topics. It might lead, cause churches to avoid hard passages of scripture. And pleasure might be why, why, why churches and movements might stay silent about evil or about corruption. It's pleasure. And, and pleasure is also why, why the church with a big C or why a church with a small C 
might might isolate itself from the world, kind of wall itself off, focus inward on the people it knows who are who we know are safe and comfortable and friendly and pleasant, okay? It's it's pleasure. And the third temptation is this. The third category of temptation is power. And power is a huge temptation for the church because Christianity is kind of hard. It's kind of hard. It's kind of slow. And if we could, we would make it faster and easier and smoother. We just don't have the power. And so this is a constant temptation for us. Power is why some churches talk about other churches like they are the competition. Power is why we sometimes might lose heart. We might give up and and sort of jump ship when it seems like things in church are taking too long. Power is why some leaders might attack uh, one another. Power is why leaders uh, become defensive and and, uh, go on the attack and silence their accusers, you know, when, when they've done something wrong. Power is why churches refuse to believe the survivors of abuse. It's all power. And, and power is why we might ignore the people in here, unlike pleasure where we might uh, only focus on the people in here and ignore the people out there, power might cause us to ignore the people in here and instead focus only on the people out there who can increase our power, increase our size, increase our share of the market. And so those are three powerful temptations. There, there may be others, but I think it seems to me these are the big three. My theory is that these are unavoidable. That the church, the people of God, in all places and at all times, has always been and always will be tempted by these three things, power and pleasure and pride. And if we don't resist these things... If we don't flee from these temptations, you know what's going to happen? A couple things might happen. Either the, either the church, again, large C, or a church with small C, the church might, might just crash and burn and, and, and close. Or even worse, it'll succeed and it'll grow and it'll explode and spread its dysfunction all over the place. And so the temptation is, is just unavoidable. Now, let's turn our, our attention to Corinth and, and see if that theory holds, okay? By looking at what Paul says to the Corinthians here, because as far as God is concerned, it seems that their worship has become unacceptable, all right? Their worship is unacceptable. Now, we've joined Paul here at the end of the passage. This is where he sort of gives his, his breakdown of what's going wrong there. And, and it's, it's that the Corinthians are mixing the worship of Jesus with the worship of Aphrodite. She's the Greek goddess of love. And the, and the Christians here are mixing their worship of Jesus and Aphrodite. And, and that wouldn't be such a big deal if worship is just sort of a passive experience. Something you can attend, something you can go to and visit and then leave at the end and nothing really happens. But that's not what worship is. Uh, in, in worship, Paul wants us to know, in, in worship, you are a participant, okay? You're a participant. You participate in worship, he says. Verse, uh, verse 18, he uses the language of participation. We are, we are not just passive spectators of worship here. When, we, when a church gathers and when we share the bread and cup, that is a participation in Jesus, Okay, we align with him. We join him there. We offer ourselves to him. In in a sense, we like rededicate ourselves to Jesus 
at the table in an active way. That's why, just stepping aside for a minute, that's why when benediction uh, met in person, and, and like God willing, we will do it again someday. But when we gather in person and we take communion, our practice has always been to come forward for communion. Because it's important we, because we feel like this is a way that we can show in a sort of a bodily way and express in a, in a bodily way that we are with Jesus. We identify with Jesus. We participate in Jesus. The problem in, in, in Corinth, though, is that as soon as the service is over and they clean up all their brunch dishes, there's a handful of these Christians who say their goodbyes and then they head up the mountain and they drop in at the Temple of Aphrodite and they meet up with their hot friends there and they participate in the worship service there. And they sing songs to Aphrodite and they, they praise her for her goodness and her beauty and her gifts and they offer sacrifices there and they share in another meal. And then, then the, the guys and the ladies, they hook up. And Paul wants them to know, you guys, that is not acceptable. You cannot say we're with Jesus and then also join with the, with the Aphroditeans and say, like, we are with her. Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. He wants them to know, you guys, what you're doing, it's demonic. It's demonic. It's, it's unacceptable. This is not some neutral cultural practice. This isn't like a show that you're watching. You're participating in something here, and it's demonic. And to illustrate the point, to, to make it really clear, Paul wants to, to take them back and give them a bit of a history lesson. He wants to show them where they came from. So the third part here is that their history was remarkable. Their history was remarkable. So, so going back now to verse 1, Paul wants them to see, he wants them to be reminded of their ancestors and see how Israel was God's people and, and they had it so good for such a long time. You know, like you and I, in 2021, and even in Paul's day, we have the scriptures, we have the stories, but they, God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, they had the cloud, okay? They had the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the manna. They saw the, they had the, they drank the water from the rock and Jesus Christ was there and he accompanied them, Paul's saying. Like in other words, Israel was the original Jesus followers. And it's like, they started out so great. Like their history was so remarkable. But then, as we'll see, part, and this is my, my fourth point, the pattern is just unmistakable that temptation struck. Okay? Paul says, verse 5, that God was not pleased with most of them. Well, well what happened? Um, well, he gives some highlights from the story of Israel. He reminds them of the time, for example, verse 7, when they worshipped the golden calf and they gave in to the temptations of, of pride and of pleasure. Verse 8, he reminds them of the time that the Israelite men hooked up with the, the Moabite women and they worshipped Baal and then 23,000 men died. And that story is told in Numbers 25 and because they had given in to the temptation of, of pleasure and, and power. And then verse 9, he reminds them of the time that the people rose up and complained and they blamed Moses. And then they were poisoned by snakes and they were, they were only rescued because of the bronze uh, serpent. 
because they'd given in to the temptation for, for power and pride. And then there was the time that Israel uh, grumbled again and they, they threatened to overthrow Moses in Numbers 14. And then just a whole bunch of them died and they were left behind and because they had given in to the temptation of power and pride and pleasure. And, and Paul wants them to know, Paul wants the church to know and he wants us to know, these things happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings and instructions for us. Like, this is for our warning, this is for our instruction. Now, what's the warning, though? What's the lesson? Like, is, is the lesson that if we, if we give in to temptation, that God's going to destroy us like he did with Israel? Well, some people would say yes. Like, just so you know, there are lots of my contemporaries who would preach that sermon. That is an easy sermon to preach from this text, but that I, I don't believe, in fact, I'm convinced that is not what's going on here. That is not the warning. That God is waiting for you to mess up so that he can get you. That's not the message. So look back now. Verse 7. Paul, Paul says to them, you guys, to the church, don't be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8. We shouldn't con- commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9. We should not test Christ as some of them did. Verse 10. Do not grumble as some of them did. The lesson here, the warning is, we are the same as they were. Like we are tempted in all the same ways they were. Right? We are no different from Israel in that sense. Except the difference, the, the one difference is they saw the plagues. They saw the cloud. They saw the fire. They saw the sea part, right? They, they watched Pharaoh's army drown. They, they saw the snakes and the, the, they saw the bodies. In fact, those bodies were their relatives. And after all that Israel saw, after all that they experienced, if they were still tempted by power and pride and pleasure, why in the world would we think that in the church that we won't be tempted? That's the warning. The warning, the lesson here is, of course we will. Of course we'll be tempted. God's people have always been tempted by pride and power and pleasure. In fact, it might be true that one of the marks of being God's people has been, has always been that we are tempted to leave him, to replace him, okay, to correct God, to to do God's job for him, to improve on God. But you know, we do have something that they didn't have. We have something that they didn't have because it's even though the pattern is unmistakable. I want you to come with me to Matthew 28 for a minute because we're going to see that we have a mission that is incomparable. Okay? It's the, the our mission is incomparable. I want you to just remember what Jesus said to the church before he left and ascended into heaven. He said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit." And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so here from Jesus' words to the church, we see we have a purpose. Like we actually have a mission. There's a a reason the church exists. And when any individual, young or old, male or female, messy, churchy, de-churched, unchurched, when a person, when any person trusts in Jesus, 
their life ceases to be just about them and their individual, private, personal choices. It ceases to be about uh, you know us and our individual, personal relationship with God. It ceases to be mainly about that. And you join the church. You join this cosmic, eternal family, this body of Christ, and God's mission becomes your mission. Like God's mission, that's our mission. That's our mission. That's our purpose. Now, I don't know anybody who explains this better than N.T. Wright. So listen to this. The church doesn't exist in order to provide a place where people can pursue their private spiritual agendas and develop their own spiritual potential. Nor does it exist in order to provide a safe haven in which people can hide from the wicked world and ensure that they themselves arrive safely at another worldly destination. Through the church... God will announce to the wider world that he is indeed its wise, loving, and just creator. That though Jesus has, that through Jesus he has defeated the powers that corrupt and enslave it, and that by his spirit he is at work now to heal and renew it. Do you see? There is, there is this, this project that God is on. There is something big and important and cosmic that God is doing right now through the church. And and as great as it would have been for you and I to have been there and to see what Israel saw, you know what we have? We actually have something that they didn't have. Now come with me to see this. Just Come with me back a few chapters to Matthew 16 and see where, where Jesus tells Peter and the apostles, He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now listen, Israel saw lots of awesome stuff. Lots. But Israel was never given the keys to the kingdom of God. And, and I know that there's a lot of, of talk, a lot of important conversation for us to have, uh, and a lot of it's going on right now in our culture about the ways that the church has failed, and perhaps ways that the church is failing. And the last thing that I would ever want to do is to trivialize that stuff or ignore it. But listen, there is actually some pretty good news. That it's, it's that the church, despite her mistakes, is not doomed to repeat them. The church is not doomed to repeat its mistakes. And so, so, so even though our past wasn't, it wasn't always awesome, the future is. And the, the church holds the keys. The way into God's kingdom, it's wide open. And Jesus says, look, let's get going. We've got work to do. We've got a mission. Okay? And we've got a project that, that we are on. And, and I am with you in this to the end of the age. And it seems to me that that is a lot more than the average Israelite expected. That even though they saw a lot of amazing things, they didn't see that, and they didn't expect that. And so it seems to me, even after all the, the, all the ways the church has gotten, has gotten off course, after, even after all the ways that the church has, has blown it, and I don't want to minimize those for a second, I just want you to know, I love the church. I believe in the church, and I believe that the church is the hope of the world. That through the church, Jesus is making all things new. And, and, and so does Paul, for that matter. 
So does Paul. And, and that's why, he go, as he goes on, he gives this really amazing pro, uh, promise. So here it is. It's uh, a, a hope that is unshakable. Part six is a hope that's unshakable. Now here, this is every youth pastor's favorite verse. When you were a teenager, if you grew up in a youth group, you've probably heard a handful of sermons on it. But this isn't just for individuals. This isn't just for teenagers. This is for the church. When the church is tempted with power and pride and pleasure, we have this amazing promise from God. And there's two parts to it. First of all, God is faithful. He's not going to let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. So when the church is tempted, like God holds the throttle, okay? God holds the controller. He holds the dial. The church will, the church will always be tempted, okay? The church will always be tempted. It's inescapable, but... We, the church will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. Like the church will never need to say, it's too much. It's too much, God. I give up. It's too much. I can't handle this. Because God will never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But the second part of it is that God promises a way out. He says, when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In other words, church, you have a choice. The temptations of power and pride and pleasure, they are strong. They are almost irresistible. They're almost, they're almost inescapable sometimes, but only almost. And we have a vote in what happens next. Like when the church is tempted, it doesn't have to end in failure and unfaithfulness and disobedience or sin and shame and brokenness. God is saying, guys, I promise you've got this. I promise it doesn't have to go bad. And, and, and you know, that is, that is important. That is great news for my heart to hear because the news these days is actually kind of horrible. Okay, the last point is the news is kind of horrible. Because here we are, we're, we're, I think this is week two of our four-week stay-at-home order. I, don't even, I can't even keep track anymore. And then on Friday... Uh, the premier comes and he announces even stricter COVID regulations, okay? And in fact, I don't even remember what they are. I can't, I truly, literally cannot keep up. I don't know if I'm breaking the law at this very moment. But when the announcement was made on Friday, I had a lot of thoughts and, and a lot of feelings went through my, my head and heart. And, and some of those were okay. Some of them were not. And I, I had a lot of temptations. And I just want to share those with you as I close here. Because I was tempted to despair. I was tempted to think like, this is just, this is never going to end. I quit, like, I quit, man. I quit. What am I doing here? Why am I, why am I going through all this? I was tempted to rage. Like, that is it. Rise up, church. I'm going to send some messages around to some of my pastor friends. We're going to start a revolution. We're going to get Ford out. So I was tempted to rage. I was tempted to self-pity. Like, why are we being picked on? Why can't the church catch a break? That went through my mind. I was tempted to cheat and kind of find a loophole. Like, well, maybe maybe we can start, maybe we can create some events in person and just say that we're, we're we can say we're a family because we sort of are. I was tempted to cheat, okay? I was tempted to mock some of those churches who've suffered and who've closed and think like, man, what is wrong with you? Haven't you guys heard of the internet? Haven't you heard of Zoom? In fact, for that matter, I was tempted to get kind of smug and heartless and sort of minimize the pain of this thing and go like, you know what? It's no big deal, guys. By now, we've got this. We're 14 months into this thing. We are a well-oiled Zoom machine. We've got it. 
I was tempted in all those ways. And, and I think that what's underneath all of those is, again, pride and pleasure and power. And I'm not proud of any of that stuff. I'm just saying that that's where I went. That's where I went because these things, power and pleasure, pride, they are a constant temptation. And I, but I want you to think, like I am just one pastor of one little church and I felt those temptations pretty intensely. Now, what if I were a mega church pastor with thousands of congregants hanging on my every word, thousands, tens of thousands of fans online, reading my books, listening to my podcast, surrounded by a board of 25 or 30 yes men, we could have made a real mess of things, right? So listen to this from a church called Tav. The authors say, The gospel invades our achievement-oriented, meritocratic world, where success is measured by accomplishments and numbers, and it says, no, 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 no. It says success is not measured by numbers. It says pastors and churches have an entirely different agenda, namely helping others grow in Christ-likeness. That is a lifelong process and pursuit, and we are all at different points along the way. It is a process based on love, not on business management or leadership principles. Let me share this last thought with you. When when Heather and I, when we first set out to, to start this, this church, and we first were thinking about what it was going to be like, we, we expected that we would be tempted with pride and power and pleasure. But, but here's the thing that I prayed for us in those days, and, in, in days, and it's, it's just as relevant for us today now as it, as it was then. Would you just join me in, in pray? So, Lord, I know it's okay to want to do a good job. It's okay to feel good about doing a, having done a good job, but, Lord, would you guard us from pride? We don't need to be the biggest and best church. Just help us to be the church. And, and Lord, I, I know that there's nothing wrong with power per se. I know that. It's just that I can't be trusted with too much of it. It's just that your people can't be trusted with too much power. And so help us not to be a powerful church. Help us just to be the church. And Lord, finally, I know that it's okay to like pleasure. I know that it's okay to feel good. But don't let us be a church that is comfortable while there is so much evil and so much unbelief nearby. We don't need to be the coolest church. Just help us to be the church. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.